You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, today as we continue looking at the plagues, as they continue to unfold, we're brought right into the midst of them. And we, as we read them and as we hear them, we are challenged and confronted with the exact same things that Pharaoh and the people of God are confronted with. Will we believe God or not? Will we trust him or not? Each plague is an invitation to will we follow and obey God or will we not? And today as we wrap up the plagues, minus the last one with the Passover, we're going to see four things that we must know about God. We're not going to read all of them, obviously from 820, as we look at these plagues from 820 to 1029. That would be a lot of reading. We're not going to do that, but we're going to dip into each one. And what I tried to do to summarize these last six plagues is to kind of synthesize all of them together and to kind of try to bring out four things that I think the Lord is showing us that he wants us to know about him. And so as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And we're just going to read the fourth plague, the swarms of flies. And our brother Moses tells us by the Spirit, beginning in verse 20, the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, get up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh when you see him going out to the water. Tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may worship me. But if you will not let my people go, then I will send swarms of flies against you, your officials, your people, and your houses. The Egyptians' houses will swarm with flies, and so will the land where they live. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Thick swarms of flies went into Pharaoh's palace and his officials' houses. Throughout Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the country. But Moses said it would not be right to do that. Because what we will sacrifice to the Lord our God is detestable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what the Egyptians detest in front of them, won't they stone us? We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he instructs us. Pharaoh responded, I will let you go and sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but don't go very far. Make an appeal for me. As soon as I leave you, Moses said, I will appeal to the Lord Yahweh, and tomorrow the swarms of flies will depart from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. But Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh's presence and appealed to the Lord. The Lord did, as Moses had said, he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, his officials, and his people. Not one was left. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. Help us to have a fresh revival and and zeal around you. For those of us right here, Lord, we are already bored this morning. We are already on the verge of wondering why do we come here? What's the point? We're already thinking about falling asleep. 
We endure the singing. Lord, give us a fresh revival around you. And for those of us who just got, were bored during the singing and waiting just for the sermon to start, may, may you give us a fresh revival around worshiping you, a renewed zeal for loving and responding to you in song and in scripture. Help us to know you better, Lord. And it's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's been said many times throughout history and church history that whatever you think about God, that is the most important thing about you. Not what you own, not what you drive, not what you have, not if you have three stripes or a swoosh on your feet, but what you think about God is one of the most important things about you. And John Calvin in his Institutes said it so well, where at the very beginning of his Institutes, he says, there is, without knowledge of God, there is no true knowledge of self. Without knowledge of God, there is no true knowledge of self. And here's what he means. If you want to know who you are, and if you want to know why you exist, and you want to know the meaning of your life, you must know God. Without knowing God, there is no true knowledge of self. The philosopher Rene Descartes, he's famous for saying the phrase, I think, therefore I am. Well, the book of Exodus is telling us, you must think about the I am. If you want to know why you exist, if you want to know the reason for nebula galaxies and the reason, the reason why dogs have tails that wag when they're happy. Have you ever thought about that? Why do dogs have, I mean, you see these dogs that have these like little nubby tails, they're, like, they're kind of sad. But then you have to see these dogs have these long, luscious tails that go crazy. I just watched my golden doodle of a horse dog walk through our house, that tail going everywhere, and I was just marveling at it. Why did God give you that flappy thing? See, when you think about who God is and what he's done, it's, when you think of our world, it's all tethered to knowing God. When you know who God is and his place in the universe, that he is above the universe, he's not some cog in the universe, he reigns above it, ruling creator over it all. When you know his place in the universe, you really begin to discover yours. And the place of trees, the place of romance and laughter, and why wine and bread, and why people dunking in water, why all of that matters. It's all tethered to knowing God. And that's what these plagues in Egypt are doing. Each plague, God is taking everyone to class. This is a seminary class of cosmic proportions. And with each plague, Yahweh is revealing the weakness of every Egyptian God. And he's showing, I am the Lord. And he's showing his place in the universe. And he's showing Pharaoh's place in the universe. And he's showing the people of God their place in the universe. And here's where it all begins. Here's what we must know first. And God repeats this over and over and over throughout all the plagues. And throughout the whole Testament. We must know there is none like him. There is none like him. Look at your Bibles in 9.14. So after, so we saw the Nile turn to blood. We saw the frogs. We saw the gnats all last week. We just read about the swarm of flies. In the fifth plague, the all Egyptian livestock drops dead. There are boils placed on all the people in Egypt, so severe that people can't even stand up. And then the hail rains down. And look at 9.14. Moses says, for this time... From God, I'm about to send all my plagues against you, your officials and your people. And look at what the Lord says. Then you will know there's no one like me on the whole earth. All your Egyptian gods, they are not like me. I am not one of many. There is none like me. Look what he says. By now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague. You would have been obliterated. I could have ended this with one plague. 
So why does it keep going? Look what the Lord says. However, I have let you live for this purpose. This is a message to Pharaoh, to show you my power, to make my name known on the whole earth. I want you to know that I am not some puny God. I am the Almighty. As we saw last week, each plague was an assault on the Egyptian gods. Really from the first power encounter, the snake fight between the staffs and Aaron's staff eating the two staffs of Pharaoh, of them winning, Yahweh's communicating, I am in charge. I am powerful. No one rivals me. I have no equal. And this is what each plague unfolds, if you see on on this chart. Each one is an attack on a certain Egyptian god, showing with the first one, the Nile, the happy, it was supposed to be the god of the Nile, protecting it, God turns the Nile into blood. The frog, Saket, the goddess of birth. Gnats, was Geb, the god of the desert. He strikes the dust of the earth and all these gnats come into Egypt. The flies was Kafiri, this Egyptian god who had the head of a fly. I don't know why she had the head of a fly. Maybe she swallowed a fly, who knows? The death of livestock, them all dropping dead. This was the goddess Hathor of love and, and romance and protection and had a, had a cow head. Cows were a, a big deal. Boils, Sekhmet, the goddess of her power and disease, and Isis was the god of healing. These boils were so severe, oozing all over. If you remember Pharaoh's Egyptians, they could do, they could call out frogs, they could turn the Nile, they could turn water into blood. But when the boils came, the Bible says the magicians couldn't even stand. They were so severe, the magicians couldn't even get out of bed. Yahweh is showing I'm way more powerful than all of your deities. You cannot rival me. Your magicians can't even stand up anymore. After the boils, then comes the hail. This is from Newt, the sky goddess in control of the sky. And God rips the sky open and sends hail and thunder and lightning. And then you have the locusts, Seth, the god of storms and disorder, darkness all over the whole land, darkness that they could feel, they couldn't even see there for three days. That was Ra, the sun god. And the ultimate one is the final one with the death of the firstborn where Pharaoh, his son, dies. Where Pharaoh is supposed to be the God over all of these things in control of all of it. So what Yahweh is doing, he's showing you, look, Egypt, look, Pharaoh, look, Israel, who would have known all these things too. There is none like me. Because you got to remember, a lot of these Israelites, they're meeting God for the first time too. They're hearing about God for the first time. And so Yahweh is evangelizing them. Look at how great I am. And I am your God. I am on your side. He's evangelizing Pharaoh. He's evangelizing Egypt. This is why Moses says in Exodus 10, he says in Exodus 10:1, go to Pharaoh for I've hardened his heart and the officials so that I might do these miraculous signs of mine among them. Here's why. And so that you may tell your son and your grandson, I want you to disciple your kids years from now and tell them about my power over Egypt. And look, how severely I dealt with the Egyptians and performed miraculous signs among them. And you will know that I am the Lord. See, God even wants the children to know there is no one like God. Even when you go off into college, there is no one like God. And what's amazing in this phrase, it's very intense. They dealt severely with them. In Hebrew, if you translate it into kind of like a common vernacular phrase today, it would be something like, I turned Egypt into a toy of mine. This ultimate cosmic power, God says, I batted it around like a kitten with a piece of yarn. This is my power. And it reminds me of being in Thailand and beyond a mission trip and seeing, being up in these small villages and these tribes and these people had this Buddhist practice. They would, they would build their homes and they had steps going into their house. But here's what they did. The steps, just one. One step would be uneven, either in depth or in height. 
So apart from you tripping on these stairs, I don't know if you've ever walked on stairs where just one was uneven. It, it really throws you off. So why did they do that? Here's why. They believed from generations past and Buddhist practice that you build one uneven step, this will keep the evil spirits from coming into your house. I remember hearing that. I would sit back and think, man, that is odd. That's how powerful these spirits are? A, tr- a step will trip them up? This is who you're scared of? See, there's no one like God. But at the same time, they're also believing these Buddhists. So this is how powerful the spirit realm is? Just throw in an odd step and it's going to throw them off course? Because they learned it from the generations past. They learned it from their parents. They learned it from their grandparents. They keep it up. But listen, we do the same things in the Bible Belt. There are things that have been kept up for generations because Aunt Tedum did that and because Uncle Warner taught us that and because, because you know, Papa did that. So we do that too. And one of the most damning evidences is that People in the Bible Belt, they just go to church because that's what people do. You go to church, it's Sunday. It's what you do. It didn't matter if you thought about Jesus throughout the week. It didn't matter if you prayed to him, if you confessed into him, if you love him. It didn't matter if you believed he died for your sins and rose again. It's Sunday, you go to church. You build an awkward step in Thailand and you put on decent clothes and you meet people on Sunday and you have awkward conversations with people you don't know about. Same thing, but no more. I hope no one is here as some kind of Sunday obligation. Sunday worship is meant to be a fruit of grace in your life, of what God has done in your life through the cross and tomb of Christ, not just something you have to do because that's what good people do. We are not obligated churchgoers. We gather as people who know there is none like him. There is no one else like the crucified and risen Christ. There is no one else like the eternal Father. And there is no one else like the Spirit. There is no other option than the triune God. We gather here saying, he's our only hope. He's our only way we can be forgiven. He's our only way we can have new life. Is he yours? Do you know there is none like him? All religions are not basically the same. That's what Yahweh's proving in these plagues. I'm not like these Egyptian gods. There is no one like me, and there is no one like Jesus Christ. And this is what we must know about God, too. A lot of these gods you can bargain with. You can set up deals. Here's what Yahweh says. No, you cannot. No, you cannot bargain with me. This is the second thing. Everyone loves to get a bargain. Everyone. Groupon exists for this purpose, to make you think you're getting a bargain. That, you know, you're buying stuff that you probably would not have bought anyways, but now you see 40% off. Oh, man. I've got to buy this deal to float in a salt tank for an hour. Why wouldn't I do that? You wouldn't have bought that anyways. But now you think you're getting a deal, so you go out and buy it. And kids are the best, I think, and they can bargain. Every time we put our kids to bed, and mainly Oliver, he's always the culprit. All right, buddy, it's bedtime. I'm not tired. I know you're not tired, but it's bedtime. Five more minutes? No, buddy, it's bedtime. Put him to bed, comes out. I need a sip of water. No, you don't. Get back in your cell. Clinking, clinking. Like, you know, you're not getting any water. You feel cruel. Like, man, should I give him water? Good grief. Hope he doesn't dehydrate overnight. Then he comes back out again. I just, I just need a hug. No, you don't. Get in your room. Should I give him a hug? He's going to remember this when he's 20. And you're like, no. He comes out again. I just need to tell you I love you. Buddy. He's just always bargaining, always negotiating. And we do the same thing. 
you buy an appliance, you try to get a little discount. Can I get free delivery? Can you haul the old one away for free? I mean, we're, we're always angling. Everyone's angling. And sometimes it works. But here's our problem. We think it works with God. It does not. There is no bargaining with him. It's always on God's terms. And this is what Pharaoh doesn't realize. So when Pharaoh, he finally agrees, okay, I'm going to let the people go. But look at what happens. It's here in Exodus 10, 3 through 6. And here's what Moses tells him. This is right before the plague of the locusts. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Hebrews says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh, just humble yourself. Here we are now going into the eighth round. And how has it gone so far for you, Pharaoh? It's not gone well. So humble yourself to the Lord. Our locusts are going to come. And this is a battle. Humble yourself. But Pharaoh refuses because he thinks he's a God too. He thinks this is his country. This is his government. I'm in control. I rule. I reign. And at the end of the hailstones, Moses tells him in 929 and 30, when I leave the city, I'm going to spread out my hands. The thunder will cease. The hailstones will cease. And that you will know the earth belongs to the Lord. And if Egypt is on the earth, then that belongs to the Lord. It's not yours, Pharaoh. You need to know this all belongs to God. You have no leverage, Pharaoh. This is what he's saying. You can't bargain with God. What do you have? What do you think you have leverage and power over Yahweh to negotiate with him? You don't. It's like little kids at Disney World. That place is supposed to be the happiest place on earth. There is more screaming at Disney World per capita anywhere else. More crying and angry parents than anywhere else you could find on earth. And it's when the kids, okay, let's go. We're going to the next ride. No, I want to do that one again. Like, are you crazy? We're not staying there for three hours again. We're going to another ride. And what happens? The kids just completely, those crocs turn into like anchors. <laughs> just, they dig their feet into the ground. And then their body, which used to, their muscles all used to work properly, they just turn into a bag of mulch and they just fall down. I can't. I'm not moving. Total spaghetti noodle. And what does the parent do? Oh, No. You've, we're, this negotiation tactic we're in now, I've lost. What am I going to do? No. It's like you have no power, child. You just go and pick them up. Like, let's go. I'm just going to pick you up, and we're going to keep moving. And you're crying fine. I'm just going to hold you upside down by your ankles until you stop crying. We're, just, we're walking. We're going. The child has no power. And this is what God is showing Pharaoh. You have no power over me. Each plague is Yahweh grabbing Egypt by the ankles and shaking them, saying, see, I have all the power. I am in charge. And Pharaoh says, let me cut a deal. After the plague of the flies that we read about, did you notice Pharaoh's ready to talk? He's ready to send the people out. Look at what he says. Pharaoh summons them and say, fine, you can go sacrifice. This was the first request. You can go, go sacrifice to God. That's great. But look at what, look what Pharaoh says. But stay within the country. That's not what God wanted. Let my people go into the wilderness that they may sacrifice to me. Pharaoh says, fine, but stay here. You can't leave Egypt, stay here. Moses says, no, it wouldn't be right to do that. The Egyptians are gonna hate it. They're gonna test us. They're gonna kill us. You know that. And then look at the last thing that Moses says on the screen. We must go a distance of three days into the wilderness. Why? And sacrifice to the Lord our God as he instructs us. Moses says, I'm not gonna compromise on God's word. I refuse. Pharaoh tries to compromise, try to negotiate, bargain, set up a deal. Pharaoh tries to move the line, but Moses, like Johnny Cash, says, no, I'm walking this line. It's not moving. And Pharaoh does this two more times. He tries to negotiate this deal two more times, and the next one is when just the threat of locusts. 
I mean, look at that. That's not even a full swarm. Exodus describes the swarm of locusts as there are so many on the ground that the whole ground is black. You can't even see the earth anymore. And just at the threat of locusts coming, Pharaoh goes, okay, 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 okay. Let's talk, as I know how terrible this is. And you can Google and see videos and images of locust swarms in Argentina. I mean, it's devastating. Before and after pictures of trees, full, green, leaves. After the locust swarm, nothing. Barren. Looks like death. That's why Pharaoh describes it later after it happens. Get this death off of us. But before it happens, look what, look what Pharaoh says in 10.8 up here on the screen. So Moses and Aaron are brought in just at the threat of locusts. And Pharaoh says, okay, go worship the Lord. But look what happens. Uh, Pharaoh asks a question, but, but who's going? But who, but who exactly is going? Moses replied, well, we go with our young and our old, our herds, our sons and daughters, our flocks. We're, we're all going. And look at what Pharaoh says. He said to them, the Lord would have to be with you if I would ever let you and your families go. That is amazing. You really think I'm going to let you go? God would have to be with you. That's what's happening, man. And that's what's going to happen. So Pharaoh says, look out. You're heading for trouble, Moses. No. Who's going to go? Just your able-bodied men. Worship the Lord. That's what you want. That's not what they want. So they're driven out from Pharaoh's presence. There's no, no more talking. No more, hey, go tell Pharaoh again. After this section, God tells Moses, stretch out your arms. Send the locusts. I'm not bargaining with Pharaoh anymore. So he tells him, stay in the country. Moses says, no. Okay, just your men. No, no, no. You're not going to hold our family's ransom. We're all going. The women, the children, they all deserve to gather together and worship the Lord as he's called. And then the third time, he tries to negotiate with the darkness. And Pharaoh says, fine, go, but leave your animals. Moses is like, are you kidding me? What are we going to sacrifice then? We have to obey the Lord. We're not going to edit these things. We're all going to go. We're all going to go out. We're all going to bring the animals. No compromising. So do you see what's happening? Pharaoh doesn't want to have total surrender to the Lord. He wants just enough to get what he wants. Moses refuses to compromise. He wants to alter, Pharaoh wants to alter the commands of God, just like the serpent. Alter God's word just enough to get what he wants. And I wonder how many of us today have acted like Pharaoh this week in our lives, or acting like Pharaoh today, trying to bargain with the Almighty. We know what he says, but if I could just, I want to do it this way, it'd just be better for what I want. So here, here's, here's how this matters for us, beloved. You can trace your desires and your standards for holiness. They always run parallel. As you desire God and his glory and his kingdom, your standards for righteousness and holiness from God's word run high level together. But as your desires for sin and impurity and worldliness, as those increase, your standards for righteousness from God's word plummet, begin to falter to the ground. And you see it all the time like this, where people will say to themselves, to convince themselves, to make side deals with God. Lord, I know that, I know that pornography is a sin. I, I, I know it, but, but at least I'm not actually fornicating. I'm not actually hurting anybody. Lord, I know that you've called me to, to marry another Christian. I'm not supposed to marry an unbeliever, but I'm getting older. And I'm still not married yet. Lord, I know you've called me to be kind to others, but my boss is such a jerk. Lord, I know that your scripture says don't despise the refugee, but 
Lord, I know I should be more committed to Sunday mornings and, and Sunday worship, but I mean, we're tired and I do read my Bible to the kids and we listen to worship music while we play Legos. Or things like, Lord, if you'll do this for me, I promise I'll stop sinning in this way. Lord, if you do this for me, I will totally do this for you. See, we set up all these little sidebar negotiations and bargaining with God like Pharaoh. Right now, where do you think you can bargain with the Lord? And you're not walking in total surrender to him. It might, the biggest one might be that you think you're good enough, that your good enoughness will get you into heaven. It won't. You need to know clearly God demands perfection, which is why you need Jesus in your place. His righteous life, his death, his blood covering you and rising from the dead and bringing you into the heavenly places. So where are you, like Pharaoh, not walking in humility and surrender to the Lord? Asterisks and footnotes and internal edits that we've done. That's not the way of God's people. That's the way of Pharaoh. What God's people do is we hear the commands of Christ and we pick up our cross and we hear it clomp behind us as we crucify our sins daily. As we walk in newness of life, as we walk in true repentance, knowing, here's the third thing that you must know, no, you cannot fool God with phony repentance. This is, this is Pharaoh's specialty. After the swarm of flies, what does Pharaoh do? I'll let y'all go. I'm sure he sounded just like Eeyore. Oh man, woe is me. I'm losing again. I'll let y'all go. He appears contrite, doesn't he? But, but what does Moses say? In, in 829, look at what Moses says. As soon as I leave you, I'll appeal to the Lord tomorrow. But look, look what Moses says. But Pharaoh must not act deceptively again by refusing to let the people go. You've been tricking us over and over and over. No more, Pharaoh. I've been down this road with you. And then the Armageddon hailstorm hits. This is the biggest example. Look, look at 922 and 30 in, in your Bible. It's not on the screen. I want you to actually look in your Bible and, and see it in 9.22 through 30, as the hailstorm commences, it looks like Pharaoh repents. 9.22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven and let there be hail throughout the land of Egypt on the people and animals and every plant in the field and land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord, he's in control of the sky. He sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the land, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. I and mean, this is Armageddon-type stuff. The hail with lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the fields with people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Now look at Pharaoh's response, verse 27. So Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron. I have sinned this time, he said to them. The Lord is the righteous one. He even calls him Yahweh. Yahweh is the righteous one. And I, my people, are the guilty ones. If we saw this and we were there, we'd be like, oh, Pharaoh's repenting. Get the camera crew. Let's film his testimony. We can put it on Facebook. He's totally turning to the Lord. 28, make an appeal to the Lord. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go. He's totally turning. He seems contrite. He seems like he's gonna honor God. But what does Moses say? Verse 30. Moses says, yeah, right. But as for you and your officials, I know 
that you still do not fear the Lord God. Nice try, Pharaoh. I've been down this road with you. You don't fear the Lord. Because if you would have feared the Lord, you would have obeyed. Because you know who did obey? It's in verse 20 and 21. Pharaoh's officials, some of them heard the threat of the hailstorms and they brought their animals and their people in. Pharaoh didn't. So you know why Pharaoh is acting this way? Looking repentant? Here's why. Because everything is horrible. It's really easy to look repentant when everything stinks. A lot of people feel sorry for what they've done when everything is terrible. These are foxhole conversions, people that convert on the battlefield, convert, air quotes, on the battlefield. They just sit in these holes and bullets rain over their heads. They say, God, get me out of here and I'll follow you. They get out, what happens? They don't follow God. People have chemo conversions. As they get the drops, God, if you just heal me, I'll totally follow you. I'll do whatever you want. They get healed, they don't follow God. Hail ends, frogs leave, gnats go, locusts leave. It's the same thing. Temporary trust. Situation betters, God's to the curb. You know, I've been a pastor long enough, and I bet you've been a Christian long enough that you can sniff out when someone is genuinely repentant or they're just bummed about how much their life stinks. I've sat with these people. They make a horrible decision. They ruin their life, ruin everything, and they mope around, woe is me, and I'm sorry, as they're said galore. But there is still finger pointing. Yeah, I sinned, but they did too. They're still wanting vengeance. They're still angling. They're still unwilling to admit, yeah, I've sinned against God. I just got to own it. And it's bared out and turning. Real repentance is shown in turning from sin. And then there's a renewed zeal for holiness. And this is one thing that I think the church, churches like ours, and I hear this often, we've got to get straight. Confession and repentance are not the same thing. Repentance isn't just admitting a sin. We, someone admits a sin and we say, oh, they repented. No, they didn't. They just confessed it, which is important. But if I said, ah, you know what, you're right. I do owe you $100. Would you be satisfied? You're like, where's my $100? Well, I admitted it. Isn't that good, that's not good enough for you? No, I, I want the $100. Like, so confession is admitting, yeah, I owe you that. Repentance is, here it is. Repentance is the actual turning from that sin, believing it's been crucified with Christ, and believing since Christ raised from the dead, I can now walk in a new life. I can walk in a new way. The simplest way to think of repentance is repentance is realignment with the risen Christ. Confession is admitting, yeah, that was sin. Repentance is now I'm realigning myself with the risen Christ. And this is Paul, this is exactly what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians. The difference between worldly grief and godly grief. Godly grief produces repentance, a turning that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief, which can happen in the church, worldly grief produces death, no change. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving, this godly grief, as God wills, has produced in you. Here's what godly grief looks like. A desire to clear yourselves. I want to make it right. I want to walk in holiness. What indignation. I hate that sin. I'm so sorry. I hate it. Please forgive me. I want to honor you. I want to love you. I want to walk in righteousness. What fear. I want to walk in the fear of God. I I fear dishonoring him. What deep longing. I crave purity. I crave holiness. What zeal. What justice. I want to reconcile. I want to make things right. 
Paul says, every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So worldly grief and godly grief, they look the same at the beginning. They're sad. But godly grief keeps going, not down into the pit, but up from the grave, up towards new life. Worldly grief just keeps wallowing in the mud and never brings about any change. Beloved, you must know there is a giant difference between being grieved over your sin and being down in the dumps because your life stinks. You see this in kids. You see this in adults. Upset that they got found out or upset that they really hurt someone. Upset that they really sinned against God. See, it's a citizen of the kingdom who turns to belief, who turns to forgiveness, who turns to walking in holiness, knowing and really believing that we, we, we all sin. We all mess up. We all get little silly, dumb arguments between husband and wife over something small. We, we all respond poorly to our kids or to a coworker. So what do we do? We know God shows mercy. God shows mercy. Do you notice how, how some of these plagues unfolded? This is incredible. I just put it up on a chart real quick. Look at how some of these plagues unfolded with the flies. Where did the flies not go? On that day, I'll give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction. That word literally is I will make a redemption between my people and your people. Where did the livestock not drop dead? Whatever the Israelites owned. Lord will make a distinction, a redemption between the livestock of Israel and livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all the Israelites own will die. It hailed all throughout Egypt, except where? One place. The only place it didn't hail is in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. The only place it wasn't dark in all of Egypt. One person could not see another. And for three days, they did not move from where they were. Yet all the Israelites had light where they lived. Why? Why did God do that? Because the Israelites are so awesome? Because the Israelites are so great at following the Lord. They're just so solid and in love with him. Because the Israelites are just such, they're so much better than the Egyptians. They're smarter. No. The Israelites are actually terrible people just like the Egyptians. They're idolatrous, complaining, whining. Eventually, as they're walking in the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, they actually have the guts to say, we had it better in Egypt. We should get out of here. I've, most, I don't know how you just didn't just crack one of them on the head with his stick. You had it better being a slave in Egypt? That was better for you? And then the, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, get into commandments, and they think he's taking too long. Aaron says, give me all your gold. And he makes a golden calf, just like the gods of Egypt. And Aaron says, behold, your gods, plural, just like Egypt, who delivered you from Egypt. Idolatrous. Moses comes down, what is going on? He smashes the Ten Commandments. Aaron says, I have no idea what's happening. I, I, the people just, the calf, the calf appeared. Aaron made it. They're lying, adulterous, whining, backstabbing, complaining people. So why did God exempt them from these plagues? Because they earned it, they deserved it. No, because God is merciful. This is the only explanation. God is merciful. Even later in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells them, do not think that you get these blessings because you're so great and so powerful. It's actually because you're so weak and because I'm merciful. 
Even when Moses says, God, show me your glory. You know what what God does? He walks past him, but God says something as he walks past him. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. It's the same reason why you're saved. Why why did you believe in the Lord Jesus at summer camp when you were in high school or a young age? Why did you believe a preacher somewhere along the line on a Sunday morning? Why did you believe in the Lord Jesus hunched over a Bible in a dorm room in college as tears landed on those pages? Why did you believe at a friend's house over spaghetti dinner? Why? Why did any of us believe? Because God is merciful. Not because you grew up in a Christian home, not because you were more apt to understand these things. No, but because God is merciful to rotten sinners like you and me. As Paul tells us in Romans 9, for he tells Moses, summarizing the Exodus account, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it doesn't depend on human will. It doesn't depend on your effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, the Bible preaches to Pharaoh. I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So why me? Why am I saved? Why were they exempt from the plagues? Because of God's mercy. And it's the exact same reason why you can't give up on your family members, why you can't give up on your coworkers, why you can't give up on your friends who don't believe. The same reason why you were saved God's mercy is the same reason why you can't give up on them because God is merciful and God can save them. The only way to have God's wrath and God's judgment avoid you like it avoided the Israelites in Goshen have it land somewhere else as if it lands on Jesus. He is our shelter. He is our substitute. And God's mercy is available to you today. Even you who doubt the most, could I really be forgiven? Could I really be saved? Could I really be born again? God's mercy is available for you today. See, God's mercy, it sets you free from thinking you need to bargain with him because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left. There's nothing left in your account. There's nothing left that needs to be shored up. Jesus paid it all. There's no bargaining needed. And he sets us free, Jesus does, from phony repentance. Because all my sins have already been paid for. The Lord already knows about all of them. So what if you find out? So what if others find out? They're just getting caught up with what God already knows about us. And we're already loved and accepted. We're already rotten sinners made righteous by the crucified and no longer dead Jesus of Nazareth. So yeah, no, there is none like him. We cannot bargain with him and we don't need to because there is none like him. And we don't need to have felony repentance because we've already been forgiven. And he gives us mercy. And when you know God's mercy and you know his power and you know his promises to you, you can truly begin to know yourself and why you exist. And that is to make disciples and make much of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.